sponsored in part by Eli Lilly and Company. Do you think you might have migraine? Talk to your healthcare professional about your symptoms, the number of days they impact your life, and which treatment options might be best for you. Learn more at thinkmigraine.com and the American Brain Foundation. For over 30 years, the foundation has worked with researchers to discover better treatment, prevention, and cures for brain diseases and disorders. Imagine life without brain disease. Learn more at AmericanBrainFoundation.org. Rethreaded offers hope and a fresh start to survivors of human trafficking right here in Jacksonville. None of us should be defined by the worst things that happen to us. Learn more about how you can unlock the potential of survivors at rethreaded.com and by Norellis, a leading neuroscience company focused on the development and commercialization of therapeutics for the treatment of epilepsy and other neurologic disorders. The company's unique drug portfolios strive to address unmet needs in patient care. Learn more at norellis.com. Hi, I'm Dr. Joe Servin, a practicing neurologist and professor of healthcare science. This is what's health got to do with it, which looks at where and how healthcare intersects with your life, helping you get the medical answers you want. Coming up, happy holidays. Do you enjoy the sounds of the season? If so, then you're in luck, as we have a special show looking at music as medicine. Then, the healing powers of sound. But first, okay, let me confess to you how much I love the holiday season. One of the reasons for that is that I am one of those guys who really enjoys the 24 hours of holiday music. There's something about it that really helps my mood and outlook on life. On this special holiday edition of our show, we have a special gift for you, where science meets the soul. Today, we delve into the extraordinary healing powers of music and sound, exploring the profound impact it has on our well-being. Joining us as a distinguished guest, Dr. Alexander Pantoyat, the visionary director of the Johns Hopkins Center for Music and Medicine. Now, Dr. Pantoliet is a leading expert at the intersection of neurology and music, and he's going to guide us through a harmonious journey, sharing insights into how melodies can serve as therapeutic interventions for various medical conditions. From neurological disorders to mental health challenges, there is a symphony of benefits that music bestows upon the human experience. This festive episode promises to be a melodic celebration of the ways in which music transcends its artistic origins, becoming a powerful prescription for healing and wellness. So stick with us as we discover the rhythm and resonance of music as the ultimate elixir for the body, mind, and soul for this holiday. Joining us now from Baltimore is Dr. Alexander Pantoliat. Dr. Pantoliat, welcome to our show. Thank you so much for having me. I'm looking forward. It is so good to have you. Happy holidays to you. Thank you so much. I want, if you could start us off by sharing with our listeners the genesis of a music and medicine center at Johns Hopkins and how did you get involved uh, to become the leader of this fascinating, groundbreaking initiative? Well, it's uh, it's been an exciting journey, and um, I will go back to the time I was still doing my training in Philadelphia at the University of Penn in uh, movement disorders neurology. So uh, I have a hat at Hopkins uh, that I wear as a movement disorders neurologist, and um when I was doing my training, there was a group of patients who told us after a 45-minute session 
of group drumming. They were just sitting around in a drum circle. Each uh, person had a drum. They had a drumming instructor from a local South Philadelphia community group. And this was a retreat that was organized for our patients with Parkinson's disease by Penn. Afterwards, they were coming up to us and saying, I feel like my tremor has lessened. My walking seems to be uh, more normalized. And I just generally am I feeling better about my life. So it was striking because uh, everybody in the group felt that way after a single 45-minute session. And so having heard that, I uh, thought maybe we should really put this to the test. And we designed a pilot trial, clinical trial, uh, for 20 patients with Parkinson's disease. Um, half of them pursued their usual daily care, and half were the, drummer, the drummers in the drumming group. And after six weeks of twice-a-week drumming, we found that the, those who were in the drumming group actually had uh, an increase in their quality of life, as measured by the validated Parkinson's disease, PDQ39 uh, quality of life questionnaire. And so there were also other uh, interesting trends in that they actually walked a bit faster, which is surprising considering you were sitting for all of the drumming sessions and their overall feedback was very positive. And so this uh, pilot trial, the first trial that I uh, ever designed and worked on period uh, was a source of inspiration for me. Uh, in terms of my background, I've been playing violin since I was seven. And that's what I'd be doing uh, professionally if I weren't a neurologist. <laughs> so that's always been a big part of my life if I had to go back all the way. And then just to, in terms of the genesis of the center itself, uh, having done the study I just described, we published it as the Drum PD study, now cited many <laughs> times by others. We, uh, I was interviewing for a job at Hopkins and my chair, uh, still uh, my boss to this day, Dr. Justin MacArthur, asked me the all-important question, what would you be doing um, with your ideal setup? If you had your perfect situation sure. professionally, what would that look like? And at that point, I figured I'd just venture, you know, and come out and say it. I, I said, I'd love to bring my passion for music together with my dedication and passion for medicine. And he said, well, uh, okay, why don't you ask around Hopkins, here are some contacts to see if you have like-minded people who are interested in the same kind of idea, music as medicine around. And so several months later, um, you know, over 80 people from around Johns Hopkins School of Medicine, School of Music, our Peabody um, Conservatory colleagues, the undergraduate campus, over 80 people expressed interest. And that really was the impetus. So uh, about a year and a half later, um, we launched the Center for Music and Medicine in partnership with Peabody. And it's just been a dream ever since to move this work forward. Alex, I am sitting there. On, there's so many things I could follow up on, but that is incredible. Uh, and I, I want to kind of let let me focus on on the first part. Uh, this the drum circle showing improvement for folks uh, that have Parkinson's. And let me kind of broaden out this concept. You know, music is so interesting because it's 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 universal. You don't need to speak it. And regardless of what language you speak, you can appreciate it. How does music, I know it bridges culture and language gaps, but how does it help medically? I get, you gave a gorgeous example, but what are you learning from that perspective, from the larger view of it? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I'm glad you um, set the question up this way, because uh, uh, that's actually where we uh, know quite a lot in terms of the overlap between the parts of the brain that are involved uh, with language processing and the parts of the brain that are involved with music processing. So there is actually an extensive amount of overlap. The key area, if uh, I could call it that, um, speaking to a fellow neurologist, yes, yes. <laughs> the key area in the temporal lobe that uh, is involved in pitch and some aspects of rhythm processing is called the planum temporale or temporal plane. And that's a, kind of a wedge-shaped area within the part of the brain uh, that processes uh, the understanding of language, language comprehension, which is the Wernicke area. So it's wedged within the Wernicke area, but it's distinct enough to where if you have a localized stroke or another injury to that part of the brain, you might have an impairment in language, but um, the ability to process musical 
stimuli, musical information can be preserved. And so this is a key basis for a lot of music-based rehabilitation approaches. So just to give concrete example, uh, example of re relatively recent history, uh, Gabby Giffords, sure. the Arizona senator, uh, suffered a terrible injury, a gunshot wound, yes. right? And um, she lost um, quite a lot of her speech output as a result. So that's a, the um, area in the left inferior frontal lobe, the Broca's area. And um, she credits a music-based intervention and melodic intonation therapy specifically to uh, in getting back her speech. If you've heard her recently, she has made a remarkable recovery from her gunshot wound. And uh, music was a key part, the key part to her recovery. So melodic intonation therapy goes back to the 1970s. It involves this observation of overlapping yet distinct areas of the brain that are used for processing music and rhythm. And you basically start out by tapping along to a song, let's say the happy birthday right. song or something along those lines, and you're singing it. And people, even with severe injuries to that area of speech production, the Broca's area, still remarkably retain the ability of uh, saying, or I should say singing the words. So they could sing the words without being able to say the words. So the melody helps carry the word, if you will. And over time, this rehabilitation-based uh, technique removes, peels off the rhythm, the rhythmic component and the melodic component of the song, leaving intact actual speech. So that's kind of a very quick rundown of melodic intonation therapy, one of the oldest music-based uh, intervention techniques that have been used. Another um, example um, basically uses rhythm right. to help normalize walking patterns in people with various illnesses, such as Parkinson's disease, stroke, multiple sclerosis, you know, to name a few of the big ones. Right. And so the idea is you're using an external sound, rhythmic sound. Think of a metronome, yeah. right? You could have yeah. an app for that, free apps that I recommend for all my patients these days. And uh, the external sound helps you uh, focus and what we call rhythmically entrain to the beat. So the external beat helps as a kind of guide for people who have lost that normal rhythmicity of steps, right? Normally we don't think about it twice, we just step. We one take one step after the other, they're pretty well aligned. You know, uh, that kind of a normal pattern of walking breaks down in Parkinson's disease and often after stroke and in, as a result of other lesions like multiple sclerosis. And so we're helping people regain and normalize to some extent the previous automated pattern by giving them an external beat to drive the areas, augment the action, the activity of the areas that are measured. The other theory behind this, it hasn't been proven yet, but we're studying this, is perhaps music in some cases could help people with neurological injury and illness bypass the faulty pathways that oh. we know are disturbed. So there are two uh, mechanisms that are not um, mutually exclusive. You could either strengthen the pathways that are being impaired, let's say in Parkinson's disease, um, or you could use a back route via the cerebellum. In the case of Parkinson's disease, it tends to be a structure that's preserved in PD. Um, to basically get at to where you need to go in the brain using rhythm and access it through a circuitous to a roundabout route. So um, these are things that are under active investigation. A lot we still don't know about the mechanism of how music impacts the brain and how it leads to the frankly surprisingly good outcomes that we have been seeing across different uh, clinical trials and studies. But I'm very excited about this because um, People are finally understanding the potential power of music in uh, rehabilitation for both neurological and non-neurological illnesses. The NIH, through its music and health program, uh, has funded well over $20 million worth of uh, research since 2019 on music-based interventions and how they can be harnessed to help people. It is so fascinating because we don't often think of it that way. I, I, I guess, you know, as uh, for myself and for our listeners, I would ask the question, what distinguishes something using music as therapy from simply 
going into my car after we have this interview and listening to songs uh, recreationally versus what you would be doing in terms of using music as a treatment? Sure. So, uh, you know, just quickly um, clarify the definitions. So um, you think of music medicine as anything that involves the use of music um, to improve health, okay. to impact health in a positive way. So when you are putting on headphones or listening to music in the car, your favorite Spotify playlist, um, that's music medicine. When I play the violin for my patients or when I engage them in a clinical trial that involves them playing the drums, that's music medicine. The moment it becomes music therapy is when you engage a licensed, trained, music therapist, minimum of bachelor's degree, typically a master's degree, and increasingly a PhD degree, um, to actually work with them either one-on-one, -on -one, uh, we do both one-on-one -on -one and group sessions at the Center for Music and Medicine at Hopkins, for example, and develop a long-term relationship, just like you would think of with a psychotherapist, a talk therapist, right? Mm -hmm. And um, using music as a medium, um, as a conduit towards um, uh, therapeutic goals. So it's music therapy when a licensed, trained music therapist is involved. Everything else is music medicine. And then the broad term that the NIH has used, the National Institute of Health has adapted to describe uh, all of this is music-based interventions. So you could have music-based interventions delivered by a music therapist, that's music therapy, then everything else delivered by you, by me, delivered by patients to and for themselves is music medicine. And it is an important distinction because fundamentally we need to do trials, we need to do research to compare the two, music sure. medicine versus music therapy to determine when is it appropriate for people to just self-medicate with right. music, if you will, right. versus involve a music therapist who, will, uh, who has the background and expertise to help you develop or develop for you a bespoke, personalized, precision music medicine playlist. It so is, just one it, common example. It is, it is incredible as I listen to it because I just don't often think of it in that manner. And to all of our listeners out there, you're listening to What's Health Got to Do With It on WJCT News 89.9. I'm Dr. Joe Servin. And if you're just joining us, it's our special holiday show on music as medicine. And we want to hear from you. If you have an idea for future shows, tweet me at Jay Servin. I, I was wondering, could you, sh you've already shared a couple cases that Gabby Giffords, your first trial, but is there, is there one specific case or anecdote that for you was just so, that stuck with you to say, my goodness, look at the transformative power of music in helping a patient out. Yeah. Um, I, I promise you, I'm not making this up, but this actually happened okay. on the same call weekend uh, during neurology residency. Okay. So I was a senior resident uh, on the team and we had two uh, pretty large left middle cerebral artery strokes uh, come in uh, within um, about an hour and a half of each other. So it's just for uh, our listeners. So that means that the, the big middle cerebral artery in the brain uh, was closed off and a big chunk of the brain had a stroke. Exactly. Okay. And unfortunately for both of these patients that involved the left inferior frontal lobe and both of them completely lost their speaking abilities. Okay. As it happened, one of those folks was a singer by oh. background and the other person did not have any significant prior musical background. So just to kind of add that detail. Um, the first thing that our attending, Dr. Scott Kasner, I want to give him a shout out. He's still at Penn, sure, <laughs> now leading the sure. charge. Uh, Scott, uh, who is the first to admit that he doesn't have the uh, strongest ear for music, <laughs> just to put it that way. The first thing he did when we were on rounds for both of those patients who are in nearby rooms is try and sing happy birthday with them. said, huh. I'm going to try to sing happy birthday with you and see if you're able to sing it along with me. And so um, uh, in spite of his rendition, both of the patients were immediately, the on the first attempt, 
able to perfectly sing happy birthday, both the person who had singing background and the person who did not. Mm -hmm. And the moment they stopped singing, when we were asking them to say the words happy birthday or really their name or anything else, they were unable to do so. So wow. that is just a remarkable, and it, I promise you it happened the same, the same day, which is especially powerful. Uh, they were unable to speak at all because the part of the brain had been shut off at that time that produces words. And the parts of the brain overlapping with that language production pathway that involve music were able to make up for that immediately. And uh, they were able to sing those words perfectly. So that is really, I could name other sure. examples, for example, from my mother who was a neurologist as well during her medical school training she never forgot a patient with advanced alzheimer's dementia right who had lost the ability to speak in advanced stages but had learned several italian opera arias so not as native language sure. as a young man and retained a very pleasant voice uh, even in the deep advanced stages of alzheimer's dementia he was unable to speak but he retained the ability to sing perfectly in a foreign language for Italian opera arias that he had learned as a young man. Just absolutely incredible. Incredible is the only word I have for it. It just tells us there's so much we just don't know about this. Let me let me ask you from a very different perspective from where I started. I started this talking about holiday music and uh, and and how it evokes emotions and memories. Um how does the emotional connection to the music uh, this summer? It seems everyone had an emotional connection to Taylor Swift or Beyonce, uh, and uh, as they had sold out concerts. How does how do those connections impact this this musical healing ability? Is that part of this too? It's a huge part of it. I'm really glad that you're bringing this up. So just to step back, and I want to quickly say the challenge as well as the promise of music-based interventions lies in the fact that when we look at the parts of the brain that are activated, that light up using functional magnetic resonance imaging or positron emission tomography, um, those much of the brain lights up at the same time. So multiple networks are activated by just hearing music, not even playing music or singing, just hearing music, just listening uh, at the same time. And one of the networks that is consistently and very powerfully activated in the brain in response to music is the emotional processing network. Now here I wanna make a very important point. Sure. One size that will never fit all when it comes to music-based interventions. So to give another concrete example, imagine two people uh, roughly the same age who happen to dance to the same song as uh, at their wedding, as their first song, sure. right? When you come out and dance floor. One person, so let's say they're hearing that same song 10 years later. One person is happily married 10 years later. The other person had a, went through a bitter divorce, you know, uh, seven right. years in or so. Their activation patterns on functional MRI or positive emission tomography to exactly the same song are going to be very different and in some ways diametrically opposed. They will powerfully activate the emotional processing network and the reward processing network in both people. But in one case, the person who went through a bitter divorce is going to have amygdala activation, the fight or flight center, the center of the, the place in the brain, which is associated with fear, with uh, feelings of threat and aggression. Whereas the person who is still happily married will almost certainly have significant dopamine release in their nucleus accumbens, which is a part of this network that, you know, in the uh, lay press has been referred to as the pleasure center. So the same part that's powerfully activated by cocaine, alcohol, heroin, other drugs of abuse. So for some people, this a given song could be their drug of choice, right? Literally. Music can be too, literally, because it activates the same network in the brain. And for others, it could be a powerful negative stimulus. And so to, to me, this speaks to the point that music does not fit you know, one size does not fit all in music, and you have to work carefully to select precision music-based interventions that are individualized. And we do have tools to do that now through validated questionnaires. That is, again, I'm going to keep saying just this is so fascinating. As you 
work on the different research projects and collaborations within the Hopkins Music and Medicine Center. Is there a particular project or uh, or or collaboration that you are particularly excited about that could shape how this relationship between music and medicine works that you can share with our listeners? Yeah, happy to. Absolutely. Um, we are very fortunate to have um, a, a philanthropic support for a pilot project that we are... Um, hopeful we'll be able to expand to a multi-site trial next year. And so this involves the use of music therapy for people with uh, amnestic, so memory predominant, mild cognitive impairment, and early mild dementia due to Alzheimer's disease. We have gathered pilot data with people who are at home and they undergo twice a week sessions of music therapy with a licensed, trained, experienced music therapists that are oriented towards improving their autobiographical memory. So memory for episodes in their uh, life, uh, events, facts, um, etc. And so what we're doing is before the music therapy begins, that's uh, 16 sessions over eight weeks, we do uh, obviously memory assessments and we do a brain MRI scan where one of the unique things we're doing is we're playing snippets of personally selected songs that people indicated they have an emotional connection to in a scan. And we have scrambled, digitally scrambled in a replicable, repeatable way, the same preferred song snippets to make them unrecognizable. So what we're trying to get at is really a better answer to your prior question about where does emotion fit into all of this. We think our hypothesis is that it plays a very important role and that it helps people bind their memory and also potentially help people retrieve them in an efficient way. And music, by activating these emotional processing networks, as well as the memory network itself, can help. So we're playing in random order the song of interest is a snippet, the snippet of a scrambler song, and then a snippet of a song that is um, not salient to the patient. So not n- doesn't have an emotional connection. And we're looking at uh, patterns of functional MRI activation as people are hearing this. And what we're hypothesizing is that after as little as eight weeks of music therapy, so 16 sessions over eight weeks, people are actually going to change with respect to their activation patterns. That's one aspect. The other aspect that I wanna emphasize is that we are carefully collecting data on prior musical exposure from people. Because our central hypothesis, to paraphrase Michael Tout, the founder of neurologic music therapy, is that the brain that engages with music is changed by this engagement. If we take that to be the case, that the brain is actually changed in a way that we could measure using techniques like magnetic resonance imaging, then it would be obvious that a professional musician versus somebody who's never had musical training will have a very different response to hearing the same exact song or piece of music. And that's very important when you're trying to understand what uh, is happening in the brain in response to a musical stimulus. So that's a huge part of it, which unfortunately for a long time was not adequately addressed in the music-based intervention literature. And we're trying to fill that gap. And most importantly, of course, we're trying to use music therapy to help people with early Alzheimer's uh, gain back at least the measure of their memory. So stay tuned for uh, hopefully what will be an expansion of this project next year. I love it. I guess guess the simple follow-up is I bet our listeners out there are listening to you, and instead of waiting for the answer, the question I'd wonder is, is is that something we should all be doing, listening to music? Uh, Or is that just too early to say in terms of a therapeutic element? Well, I don't. Uh, so uh, I want to start by acknowledging my bias before I answer that. My bias <laughs> as the director of the Johns Hopkins Center for Music and Medicine is that, of course, we should all be doing this yesterday, right? <laughs> right. But um, having said that, there are concrete steps that I would uh, recommend all listeners consider. So um, we all know, uh, because we've heard this for uh, so many times from our doctors and from uh, you know just the press, how important aerobic exercise is for our lives, right? Yes. So uh, we know in the case of Parkinson's disease that it slows down the progression of the disease. 
And there's now a large study showing that it reduces mortality by up to 34% compared to couch potatoes for those who exercise um, 150 minutes a week or so aerobically. So everybody needs to do that. There's absolutely no question about that. Uh, but the question is, how do you motivate and how do you actually sustain that? Well, music would be a very natural way sure. to do it. Uh, I personally confess to listening to music when I work out. It helps me run. Uh, this is a very common thing. And if you're not doing that, then music might help you in terms of stamina, in terms of synchronizing your steps to the beat. That actually can be helpful for runners who are training for um, you know, competitions. That's something that people use. Um, you can also consider things like using music for relaxation, right? Again, this is where you want to self-select a list in your Spotify or uh, iTunes or Pandora playlist, um, something that approximates your natural resting heart rate of about uh, 60 beats per minute or so, something that is uh, probably more likely to be instrumental as opposed to involving words because that yeah. can be distracting, something that doesn't have too much loudness, too much variability in terms of pitch and frequency. Those are the kinds of songs, the kinds of music that most people would describe as relaxing. So a music-assisted relaxation playlist, you know, these are also available on uh, apps sure. these days like Calm or uh, you know Headspace. This is something that anybody you know to achieve a measure of relaxation can do today. J beyond that, joining a choir, uh, starting to maybe take some um, uh, piano lessons. Maybe it's something that you did when you were a kid and abandoned for 40 years. There's actually research suggesting that even after decades of not playing a musical instrument, if you played it as a kid, your pitch perception which becomes important as we get older in terms of being able to hear well what other people are saying, your pitch perception remains better than those who never had any prior musical training in their early life. So it's never too late, I tell everybody, to start something new. That's a big challenge if you've never played an instrument, but you could also restart something that maybe you used to do. If you sang in a choir as a kid, try it now. If you played the violin or the viola or drums or the guitar, try to take some lessons. Nowadays, of course, you could take YouTube lessons. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> well, for free. And so these are things that I would encourage everybody to do. The other aspect of this, which we haven't really touched upon, that would be important is the social engagement that oh, music sure. engenders. Sure. Music can be a powerful way to com combat isolation. And we know, especially our patients with neurological illnesses like Parkinson disease, like Alzheimer disease, uh, social isolation is a tremendously um, important part of the disease that um, often results in a huge reduction in quality of life that people report. And getting people uh, into a group of like-minded people who drum or sing or play guitar together, to name examples of our published studies at the center, uh, really, based on patient reports, is a very effective way, it seems, to reduce anxiety, improve mood, and foster a sense of social cohesion that music has been really used to do um, over millennia, you know, across continents, the social cohesion aspect of music. Dr. Patoyat, I think I'm going to let that serve as our final takeaway message for our audience because you've summed it up so beautifully. I, I want to just thank you so very much for giving us your time today. This has just been literally mind-blowing when I listen to you because this is just such a different way to look at, uh, all, at music in general. Uh, and just thanks again for all the work that you do. Thank you so much for having me and uh, for the uh, wonderful questions. I appreciate that. And I uh, just want to leave the um, listeners with a you know, take-home point, uh, or rather a hope personally, that in the coming years, what I really want to be able to do is alongside a medication uh, that I would be prescribing for patients, I hope to be able to uh, send them to a concert, to refer them to a community-based uh, choir group and have uh, insurance, health insurance actually pay for that. The example that, of social prescribing. That's the big hairy goal that we have. And I hope to accomplish that before I retire. I love it. And we will make sure that we share that with everyone. I love the concept. Happy holidays to you. Happy holidays. Thanks so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. We've been talking to Dr. Alexander Pantoyat. 
He's an associate professor of neurology and director of the Johns Hopkins Center for Music and Medicine and the co-editor of a new textbook on the topic entitled Music Therapy and Music-Based Interventions in Neurology coming out in early 2024. Up next, we listen to the power of sound healing. You don't want to miss it. We'll be right back. Welcome back. I'm Dr. Joe Servin, and this is What's Health Got to Do With It? You know, during this holiday season, we are surrounded by music and sound. On this special edition of our show, we explore the enchanting world of sound healing. Few of us understand the transformative power of sound. And our distinguished guest, Diana Vasquez, a gifted sound healer is here to guide us. In the spirit of the season, she's going to help us unwrap the therapeutic resonance of sound, discovering its ability to bring harmony to the mind, body, and spirit. I promise you that our next interview is a sonic celebration, exploring the ways in which sound serves as a healing balm, especially during the magical time of Christmas. So tune in and immerse yourself in the soothing symphony of sound healing. Joining us now is Diana Vasquez. She's a local sound healer and owner of Sound Bath Jacks and the Soma Collective. Diana, welcome to our program. Thank you so much for having me. It is so good to have you here. This is fascinating to me, what you do. Could you share a little bit about your journey into the world of sound healing and how you, in essence, found its therapeutic benefit? Absolutely. So sound healing came to me by complete accident. I was kind of at a turning point in my life. I'd been a career esthetician for 20 years doing skincare and had my own practice. And I really needed to figure out what I wanted to do with the rest of my life. And I was just living in a very stressful time, as most of us were in 2019, 2018. We just, the world was just kind of flying by us. And so um, I just kind of sought out some alternative modalities. I had a singing bowl just because I had a wellness practice and it was just the thing to do. Mm -hmm. um, and then a friend invited me to a sound bath and I thought... Um, well, this is interesting. I've never really sat still for an hour without having my phone or someone ask me something or just be around. And I did the first one and I was just fascinated by how I could hear the sounds all over the room, but it was just this unamplified human being at the begin at the front, just playing these bowls. And, um, and then I attended my second one. And my second one, I thought, well, that's interesting. I actually was able to quiet my mind. And if I can quiet my mind, then anybody can do it. So that's kind of how it started. And then it just became an accident. I, I ordered my first set of bowls. I took a training class. Um, and it just went from there. I, and the four training classes later, here we are. That is amazing that that's where you've gotten uh, from this. A lot of listeners are probably kind of catching some terms. You're talking bowls, yes. sound baths. This is going to be new. Uh, could you offer a brief overview of, of what exactly it entails 
and how it's different from other alternative therapies? You know, singing bowls have been around for thousands and thousands of years. They've been used from, you know, ancient civilizations use the singing bowls not only to heal people, but to also eat out of, to bring food into the village. And those were generally metal bowls. You know, the exact origin of crystal singing bowls is not entirely known, but um, someone was very smart and created some singing bowls somewhere down the road and um, created this amazing modality that helps so many people. Um by the frequencies and the vibrations that the the bowls actually emit from the body, the mind is unable to kind of do anything else but concentrate on the sounds and how they hit the walls and, and where you are um, when you're listening. Uh, you can actually feel it within your body. And so that uh, physical reaction to sound helps your brain entrain and relax and drop in. So ultimately, that's what we want is just some quiet time for our body to actually do what it's created to do is to heal itself. So when when someone out there uh, says they want to do some type of sound therapy, sound healing therapy, what does that look like in terms of like uh, they come to see someone like yourself? Sure. What? What happens? So um, most of the time, these are done while you're laying on a yoga mat, a fitness mat, whatever maybe. I do offer some in my studio that we put zero gravity chairs out so your oh. body is completely um, relaxed. And so that will help your physical body relax in order your mind to kind of be able to do the same. So yes, you just come in, lay down, no expectations, um, and enjoy. Enjoy. Oh, naps are welcome. I, I, I love this and I'm, I'm already, you're speaking uh, to me during this very busy holiday season, and, but, but we've got a show to do. So, so I realize I can't do that, but perhaps as a gift to all of our listeners and to all of our production staff here, this may be a better time instead of describing it is to perhaps do a demonstration for us and maybe help us during this very, although Enjoyable season, stressful season. Very stressful. absolutely beautiful. I don't know what you just did, but I feel suddenly incredibly more at peace than I did uh, several uh, several minutes ago before we started talking. Is, is there certain frequencies that these bulls emit that bring on a certain feeling like that? Absolutely. Um, while most sound healing practitioners uh, intuitively play, um, each of the bowls is registered with a specific note and a specific frequency and a chakra 
that's associated with them. So certain chakras do um, kind of rattle things up and shake things up and and then ultimately release those different um, tones. Now, the tones that I have here today are uh, root bowl, which is a grounding bowl, and then um, heart chakra, which, you know, the season is about gratitude yes. and the heart. So um, that's the, the frequencies and the bowls that I just played. So basically the, the, the sounds that we're hearing are, are very related to yes. the spirit of the season, if you will. Absolutely. Most of my sound baths, I do ask if we have an intention we want to um, uh, convey with our sound bath. And then I intuitively will play to that uh, particular intention. There's so many people that are stressed out. Absolutely. They're anxious. And holidays, they magnify it or they can certainly increase it as much as they're sort of so joyful. How do you suggest people can incorporate sound healing practices into their lives? You know, it's as simple as taking five minutes away. You don't have to go into a studio to have a sound bath. There are hundreds of apps, hundreds, there's YouTube, and there's hundreds of videos that they can take five minutes to start to just quiet the mind. Ultimately, if we allow ourselves the time and space to just fill the cup back up before we empty it back out during the family and the, and the get-togethers and all the running around, um, it's just a little bit step a step ahead of where you were before. So it doesn't have to be in the premise of a of a treatment room or a sound healing studio. It can just be at home and you're on your couch in your car. If you just, you know, have a rough day, you can go out to your car and spend five minutes and listen to some sound healing. Have you seen uh, this type of practice, sound healing, becoming more popular? Do you do you still do you see more people? picking it up? Um, where is it at this point? Um, when I started three and a half years ago here in Jacksonville, I would say to people, do you know what a sound bath is? And nobody, nobody <laughs> knew what it was. <laughs> right. um, and you can pretty much walk up to most people these days and they have some idea of what it is. It has grown exponentially, whether that is what people see on social media or on TV. Um it's, it's out there. It's out and people are being more conscientious of their health and seeking out natural modalities to work on that. So it is a beautiful thing to see how much uh, the community and people in general are embracing the mental health aspect of relaxation. It's so important and critical in our world right now. If you have a listener out there and they have enjoyed uh, what they have heard, uh, what where do you ask them if they want more information or they want to explore this uh, aspect of healing for their lives? Uh, where do you uh, send them for extra information? My website, of course, um, has lo lots of information. Uh, they can attend sound healings. I actually started a new class that is a introduction to sound healing. For those that just don't have the full time to spend an hour and a half, it's a little bit shorter, abbreviated class where they can receive a sound bath um, and or they're just not sure about it and they just want to try it out. But my website is the best place to start. Diana, would you mind if you will, playing us out absolutely uh, over this holiday season. And that way we'll leave everyone with a lovely sense of peace, which I think is the whole point of a holiday anyway. Absolutely. Thanks so much for joining Thank us today. You. Thank you for having me. We've been talking to Diana Vasquez. She's a local sound healer and owner of Sound Bath Jacks and the Soma Collective. Well, that's our program for today. We hope you've enjoyed our show. If you missed anything, you can listen to the full episode at WJCT.org and on your favorite podcast app. Thanks to all of our guests. Our executive producer is David Luckin. Stacey Bennett is our producer. Brady Corum is our director. Next week's program is another special holiday show looking at 2023 Health Year Review and a look forward to 2024. If you have questions about this or any topic, let us know by calling us at 904-358-6362, email us at health at wjct.org, or tweet me at jservin. I'm Dr. Joe Servin, and you're listening to What's Health Got to Do With It on WJCT News 89.9 FM and 
Jacksonville. Thank you for listening. Happy holidays and stay in touch. Sponsored in part by Eli Lilly and Company. Is migraine impacting your life or daily activities four or more days per month? If so, ask your healthcare professional if you are a candidate for migraine prevention treatments and which ones might be best for you. Learn more at thinkmigraine.com. The American Brain Foundation. For over 30 years, the foundation has worked with researchers to discover better treatment, prevention, and cures for brain diseases and disorders. Imagine life without brain disease. Learn more at AmericanBrainFoundation.org. And Rethreaded restores choice and breaks the cycle of generational trauma for survivors of human trafficking in Jacksonville, Florida, through business. You can help. Learn more about Rethreaded survivor-created goods at the storefront or rethreaded.com shop.